and I am Wes, modern mythology enthusiast and defender of the realm of toy collecting. This is Andy, my fearless friend. Fabulous secrets were revealed to me the day I powered up my dynamic mic and said, Welcome to Fandom Power! Andy became the mighty producer Andrew Daw, and I became host Wes, the newest pop culture podcaster on the interwebs. Only two others shared this secret, friend of the show and regular co-host Hank McLaughlin, and my lovely wife Kimberly. Together, we defend the realms of pop culture from the evil forces of toxic fandom. Hi, Scott. Hi, good morning. Hi, how are you doing? Good. Sorry, I've got multiple devices here. Oh, I know. I <laughs> I can appreciate that. <laughs> I'm, the same. I'm a mix of like high tech, low tech, no tech. <laughs> Pretty much. You can hear yeah. me okay? I can hear you just fine. How am I coming through for you? Yeah, perfect. Perfect. Okay, great. So I'm not a big Skype user, but um, the background, can you see that? Your attorney, yes. Yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> I thought it was a little nicer than uh, than just the uh, blank space behind me, which actually, I, I actually have a small retail business. So I'm actually in my store, so this kind of is a, a nicer setting than uh, shelving. <laughs> what kind of store do you have? Believe it or not, I have a small independent toy store. Oh, so this is you. this is right up my uh, right up my alley. So I'm. Uh, I got to tell you this before we get going. This is kind of my uh, this is my Star Trek first contact moment when Picard is able to put his hand on the Phoenix. <laughs> so I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, the want to uh, sit down and chat with me this morning. The line must be drawn here. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, my um, my time in the military. Uh, you know, w- one thing I learned was if you don't ask for something, you don't get it. So. I felt like it was a bit of a risk for me to just sort of blindly reach out to you. But had I not done that, we wouldn't be able to do this today. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Honestly, I'm always excited to talk toys because it's not like I talk to my wife and my you know daughter about this stuff. So it's always fun. <laughs> yeah. Interestingly enough, I remember, um, so I was a day one subscriber to uh, Masters of Universe Classics. And I remember, uh, so what we're talking 2008, but I, I remember you and the videos that you did for Mattel to interact with the fan community. And, and I have to say, I don't remember any other person from any other toy company interacting with the fan community that way at that time. So I, I certainly appreciate that aspect of it. And I always thought that that made you more approachable. If nothing else, I'm approachable. Yeah. Yeah. I know that, um, I don't want to take up a whole lot of your time this morning. I know that uh, I'm sure you're a busy guy. So thank you for looking over the questions I sent over. There's nothing there that's off limits for you. No, no. And if, you know, as we go, if there's something I like, you know, can't answer for yeah, of course. reasons, I'll just say so. Okay. That's perfect. I just didn't want to, I didn't want to embarrass you. I didn't want to embarrass me. <laughs> Not at all. More, I, more importantly. Yeah, we don't... can jump in. I don't want to lose any valuable uh, uh, conversation to this. Yeah, perfect. Okay, I really appreciate that. So I, like, why don't we dive right into it and just kind of go back to sort of the uh, early days of the brand. And certainly this is kind of where my introduction is, the vintage line. So 19... Yeah, it's recording on your end? I am recording already, yeah. Okay. So, oh, sure. you know what I should do is I should record the this. I'm recording the audio, but I should record the video as well. Not sure what happened there, but oh, yep, it says yep, it says now recording. Okay, perfect. 
So yeah, let's let's go back into it and talk about sort of the our introductions to the line, the vintage line back in 82. I don't know how old you were back then, but I was still uh, very much in my youth. And as I like to say, Masters of the Universe was one of the uh, the big three boys uh, brands of the 1980s. As a fan, what was your introduction to uh, to the brand? So let's see. So what I was four, and on my fourth birthday, I was very sick. Not like you know COVID nineteen or anything. Just you know sick enough, like with a cold, a normal kid cold, that my parents had to cancel my birthday party just so I didn't get my friends sick. Oh. But of course, to a four-year-old, this is, you know, like the end of the world that your birthday party is being canceled or postponed. So to cheer me up, my parents gave me their gifts to me that, on, you know, that day, knowing my party wasn't going to be for a few more weeks now. And what they gave me was Castle Grayskull, He-Man, Skeletor, Battle Cat, Stratos, and Man-at-Arms. Oh, wow. So that's <laughs> that's a great birthday. <laughs> yeah. It was like a huge infusion all at once. And I, it was like love at first sight. This was like amazing. Uh, I mean, I used to carry the castle around with me everywhere. And then with my actual birthday, but now a few weeks later, right. I got more stuff. I know I got the Tila and Zora two pack. Yeah. Um, that's I got Tila. And I mean, I'm, sh- I'm sure there were others, but it's interesting. I never had a lot, like some of the other early figures. Like I never had Beastman. I never had right. Merman. I never had Zodak. But then as the brand went on, I mean, I had tons and t- I mean, just so many figures, um, you know, Fisto, Buzzoff, Whiplash, Clawful, Trapjaw, et cetera, sure. et cetera. And yeah, that was basically, you know, I was also a very skinny kid when I was a kid. Right. And so the idea of this very big powerhouse muscle guy was very aspirational to me, even if it was on a subconscious level. So uh, I can definitely relate to that. I, I certainly f- echo some of the... Uh some of the the things that you say in the sense that I uh, I'm the other way I'm a little heavier <laughs> I'm a big guy and I've always kind of been a big guy and uh, you know so fitness has never been like this it's always been a challenge for me so again I mean seeing these like muscle bound dudes you know in in five and a half inch form was something like you say that you could aspire to clearly I have not <laughs> met those <laughs> those aspirations but uh, I'm not disillusioned to that either so. That's great. Did you actually look like He-Man? You'd like fall over. Yeah, really. So disproportionate, but yet so iconic. Did you, or do you have a favorite character from the vintage line that you still like is your favorite today? Stratos is definitely a big one and Trapjaw. You know, everyone loves Trapjaw, but I remember, I mean, I love Stratos because I love flying characters and he had a jetpack, and that was, you know, yeah, I, yeah, definitely big on Stratos is a fan favorite for me as well. Probably one of the first characters that I got. Unlike you, I did Beastman was my first first vintage figure and I think Stratos came the same year uh that I got him. It was I think Christmas probably. Oh, it was probably 83 or 84 maybe. I'm trying to remember back that far. <laughs> Let's fast forward a little bit and talk about getting to go to work at Mattel. I mean, I presumably you were like a normal kid. You went to school, college, and then thought you're going to go off and take your degree and do something. Did you ever imagine taking your, now you have a degree in communications, correct? Yeah, I have a double major in film and communications. Film and communications. Uh, oh, wow. Did you, did you have aspirations of taking that into the toy industry? So, well, what I wanted to do, like you said, yeah. Um, I mean, if you would have called me normal or any of us. Sure. Um, 
what I wanted to do was become a screenwriter and to specifically to write uh, TV commercials. Right. My, my golden goose was if I could have written a Super Bowl commercial, right. if you will. And uh, which is why I majored in film. But then I realized sort of halfway through my college years that I wasn't learning any real world skills besides right. how to watch movies. So I added communication as a second major. And I actually wrote my senior thesis on use in for film for, on using action figures as a vehicle to market toys. Oh, wow. And I, I got a C on the paper because my professor said it was too opinionated. And for years, I've wanted to send her my business card. And say, Is that it's right? Here. It's not opinionated when not, you're right. Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so yeah. So, I mean, I was, you know, obviously interested in toys, but I... I never, you know, I definitely didn't think I would be, you know, doing what I got to do um, Interesting. with Mattel. Did you get to do any screenwriting? Did you do anything that got picked up somewhere? Um, actually, yes. Um, I mean, besides, well, I guess as far as any, I mean, I actually have an animated series that's currently optioned that's being reviewed by a few uh, big, uh, big gun networks and stuff like that. Oh, wow. Like that. That's really exciting. Yeah. Which is really cool because I wrote that like 30 years ago. Wow. Uh, Pre-Mattel, and it's been like my, you know, my Star Wars. I mean, it's not of course, Star Wars. yeah, yeah. Everyone's got their thing, and then I mean, obviously, you know, I think that skill set comes in with the YouTube videos. Yeah, um, understanding how to do story structure, or a compelling, interesting, short form video. So, but I mean, I haven't, I have not like made any movies or anything right. like that. I'm going to jump ahead for a second because you, you mentioned your YouTube channel. I just, I was looking at it before I called you this morning and uh, you're almost at 19,000 subscribers. So congratulations on that. It looks like you're getting some really good growth there, particularly your YouTube channel. I, I have to say from, from my professional, uh, from what I do now uh, is one of the most cited channels that I cite when talking to other collectors and to other retailers about sort of the frustrations as a retailer when it comes to, um, you know, really all consumer goods, really, not just toys, but just how that whole process works. Like your videos are hugely instructional and really help to alleviate a lot of the frustration, I think, that not only as a collector, but also as a retailer. So, Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, the, kind of very, very much sort of what I was going for. You know, obviously I watch a lot of YouTube, although I have right. no sort of cognitive schema. I mean, thank you for the, you know, the compliment about the, the, where I am with sub subscribers, but I sort of have like no idea, like, is that good? Like how long does it, like, I don't really, like I've never built a channel before. Yeah. Yeah. I can appreciate that. Okay. So yeah, it's like, I don't, I don't really have any idea of like, I mean, I, uh, you know, how fast normal channels get built, but it seems like it's definitely going well. If it, if it makes oh. you feel any better, the channel that we have dedicated for our show now we share that channel with uh, two other podcasts, which we produce from our our sort of budding production company. But I think we're actually sitting at about eleven, and that's after uh, a little over six months of actually having a YouTube channel. So uh, at at nineteen thousand, you're well ahead of the curve. Well, absolutely appreciate the uh, the positive feedback, and that is what I was going for. Yeah. Was you know, there's so many YouTube channels about toys, but ninety percent of them are either you know look, you know, here's a toy I just bought and you know, right. review it. Yeah. Or here's the history of Boglins. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. So yeah, I mean, I was really, I think we were saying before we started recording about how when I was at Mattel, um, you know, I started doing the videos 
to because I wanted to market to toy collectors the way I wish toy companies would market to me yeah. as a toy collector. You know, it's like a hair club for men. I'm also a member. And so, so yeah, so the, the YouTube videos were basically, yeah, I was like, well, you know, I also kind of felt it sort of uh, not felt bad, but it was like I would see people constantly talking online about things that I knew just like weren't true. Right. Or they were they were under a false premise of how the actual industry works. And I was like, you're getting so upset over something that you're not truly informed about. Right. So maybe I could shed some light because I hate seeing people spend energy on something that's, if you will, maybe sort of like not fixable. Right. Or, you know, there at least there or there is a fix, but you're you're going in the wrong direction. Yeah, yeah. Those so. videos uh, that you did for uh, f- for classics. Were you under any instruction from your bosses to do that? Or was that something that you just decided, look, I'm going to go out and do this because there is a, a hole here that the fan community needs needs some filling? Oh, you, the videos at Mattel? You yeah, mean? yeah. <laughs> the ones I was like shooting with my phone <laughs> for the first two years. Um, oh, gosh, no. I mean, so everything with Maddie Collector was, I mean, the best way to put it was it was a hobby job. Okay. My my job job was running the DC universe line right. and then eventually green lantern movie. And then I, my last job at Mattel was, was launching the hot Wheels star Wars line. Okay. So a brand manager at Mattel, which is what my title was for the, for a good chunk of the years, you have to, uh, you have to oversee a certain amount of business just for an, a round number, you know, again, cause I can't talk about Mattel no, proprietary of stuff, not. but you know, say 50, 50 uh, million dollars or a hundred okay. million dollars. Maddie was obviously nowhere close to this, sort of the minimum requirement for what you would call a body in a seat. Right. You know, like, like, so the DC lines that I managed justified a full-time brand manager. Okay. Maddie wasn't even close. So I was sort of allowed to do Maddie as long as I did it in addition to my regular job. Interesting. So the videos were basically, I had, you also get what's called non-media money, which is money to spend on advertising. Right. It could be everything from buying TV or radio time to making Mossman deodorant to hand out. Oh, okay. Right. So that's directly tied to sales. Right. Like the higher sales, you know, if you're a billion dollar brand like Hot Wheels, you're going to get a lot of money to advertise it. Okay. So basically I had no, I had no uh, I was doing it on top of my regular job right. and I had no money or very little to advertise it. So the videos were more or less just a, it was like, well, I could do this and won't cost anything. Right. I'll just shoot the video myself, upload it. And, you know, I, it was basically, you know, whatever I had in my tool chest and it, it was limited. So that's really where it came from. It's interesting to hear you talk about marketing the brand and essentially saying that you did it on a shoestring. You know, as a, as a fan, like I said, as a day one subscriber on my end of things, like I just saw this never ending sort of refresh of characters and new product month over month over month. And then of course, year over year over year. And to me, it was this hugely successful direct to consumer line. And I'd never seen anything like it before. And, you know, I mean, I don't want to give the impression that Mattel didn't support it. You know, they, I mean, they absolutely did. And there were times even having the Maddie collector lines, what helped us secure the ghostbuster license. Okay. So we saw what we were doing, you know, aiming product at the adult collector. So, but it really, it was really because of the subscribers because 
you know, as, as you know, as a retailer, the way most toy lines work, 99% of them work, is uh, the first, like, the first, like let's say there's a line, you know, Marvel Legends, whatever, that's going to have mm -hmm. 10 waves for the year. Okay. They'll show retailers, they meaning the toy maker, yeah. at a toy fair, they'll show the retailers one wave, like six figures. Right. And they'll say, this represents a year of product. And if you like this and you want to carry this, you need to place an order for the full year. Right. Uh, you know, X amount per wave. And they'll do that. So with Maddie Collector, the subscribers basically just took the place of retailers within that established system. Yeah. And that was, you know, so like when the subscriptions would come up, we'd show you guys six figures, you know, give or take. And that would represent a year of product. And we'd need you to commit as a subscription to it. And it was the, so it, it basically found a way of getting the Mattel sell in system right. to work directly to fans, but maintain the same uh, guarantee that, you know, right. a year could be. And that was, it was why, because the, as long as the subscribers were, were, you know, subscribing. Yeah. It, that's what allowed the endless uh, character selection. You'd mentioned in a video, a previous video, taking some flack over that, that model, that subscription model where Mattel as a company really didn't ask for a lot of money up front and they still were able to deliver sort of month over month. Whereas opposed to, I want to compare it to the barge at Hasbro for, for Star Wars, where it was like, oh my God, there's so much money up front. And, and not, again, in my own ignorance, not understanding how things work, I've always defended it by saying, listen, I bought, I bought the classics Castle Grayskull on nothing more than a rendering. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So, I mean, how difficult was it for you to say, let's do this, but let's not take the money up front? I think some of it was being naive. Um, we should have taken the money up front, yeah, or at least a good chunk of it, because right. a lot of people bailed on it. Is that right? Like, a ridiculous amount, yeah. Really? Um, and that like really hurt the brand and hurt our ability to do you know more big things. Sure. But we had from a pre before we did that, we had so much success with the hoverboard. Right. Yeah. That that was what got Castle Grayskull approved was the fact that the hoverboard did so successful, like one item that it was yeah. like 120 wasn't that expensive, but the idea of one skew, you know, that could do a lot of units that was high end. So I get why Hasbro does, you know, like I ordered the Sentinel, yeah. um, you know, and so I paid out for that. You know, it's like you give Hasbro a uh, interest free loan, yeah. but I get why, because they have to pay for tooling and they ha they're taking a risk and, the only way to minimize that risk is to have guaranteed sales for something like that. I think that's so. where there's a breakdown, uh, you know, within the fan community, within the collector community, is they don't understand the associated costs. And it's there are other YouTubers out there that are pretty vocal about it. Like you say, like you're giving Hasbro an interest-free loan and, and the words, you know, uh, multi-billion dollar company come up. What? Why do they need my, you know, couple hundred dollars? Well. You know, the, the simple reason is they don't need to do the barge. It makes way more sense for them not to do it. Yeah. Okay. Because it's a lot of work for, you know, in perspective of a multi billion dollar company, very little revenue. Right. Um, but it all has the potential backfire, like Cookie Monster did. Or right. it doesn't so. I mean, you look like what they did with Unicron, like, you know, extending and extending and extending the deadline. Right. Because if it didn't go through, that was really going to hurt the brand. PR wise. Yes. And it's that Transformers was their own IP. So something like, you know, like 
where you're going to pay for it up front as opposed to like, come on, Hasbro, you must have like an extra, you know, couple million dollars sitting around in a locker. You know, it just doesn't work that way No, for, you know, for them to do what's really a, I mean, you know, even something like the like the Razor Crest that did like twenty thousand plus units. Yeah, that's still tiny. Yeah, like I know it's a big item, but it's like you have to realize that Fisher Price and Play School and Monopoly and Barbie and you know these these brands are billion dollar brands that do units in the in the the millions. Right, and you know to me the biggest disconnect, and I've made a few videos on my channel is how much, because, you know, as adult collectors, I mean, you can see all my stuff behind me. Yeah. Love this stuff. We put so much emotion into it. And I mean, you know, it, it you know, becomes, I mean, it's our, it's our hobby. And like, I, whenever I work with new brand managers, when I would train them, yeah, I would always tell them, whatever you do on a Sunday afternoon, whether it's playing the piano or jet skiing or hiking or tennis or walking your dog, whatever brings you joy, take that feeling multiply it by a hundred and that's how your customers feel about this product. Yeah. But that the disconnect is, is very much how much, you know, we see ourselves at the center of the universe and you right. know, these toys are made for us and there must be a team of artisans and crack, you know, film pop culture geeks working on this. When in reality, you're lucky if the brand manager is aware of the property before they became a brand manager. Sure. And, we represent such a tiny drop that they could just stop making adult collector product and it wouldn't and it would even be easier. Oh, wow. Companies. Yeah. Like if you're running the company and you're talking to the stockholders, which, right. You know, Hasbro Mattel are publicly traded companies Yeah. as our you know, spin masters on the Canadian stock exchange. Yeah. Um, Jack's is publicly owned. It makes way more sense. Just, you know, if, if you think of a glass of water as representing the total amount of manpower, woman power, purple people power. Yeah. That you could pour that glass on into brands. Right. Well, does it make sense to pour that glass into Hot Wheels and Play School and Monopoly? Or does it take make sense to pour that into making sail barges and scare glow figures? Right, right. You know, and that's I think the disconnect that we as collectors have and what creates what yeah what i call unnecessary frustration yeah you'd mentioned it before and i and i echo that there's a certain emotional the emotional connection that we have to this stuff often outweighs the the reality of what the situation really is and sometimes it's hard to separate the emotion from the reality and i don't think there's many other like consumer products or even you know entertainment that are like this where the the audience is so I mean so emotionally involved, you know, versus the you know I guess yeah obligation of a company to actually make that. You don't see this with scented candles or wrenches or number two pencils. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, no fan outrage over not having a pencil. <laughs> yeah. So Master of the Universe, huge rich history. We're talking what. Uh, Five animated series uh, to date with two more in the pipeline, several uh, supporting action figure lines, comic books, uh, as of today, as one live action film. Where do you think the high watermark is for the brand in terms of uh, the lineage? Like when did it peak? Yeah. Um, 
well, I mean, for kids, it peaked in 1985. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, mathematically, money-wise, you know, units sold. And then, I mean, it's not that Mattel got greedy, but it's the brand managers at the time overshipped tertiary characters. And right. they didn't ship enough of the characters you could see on Filmation, like classic He-Man, Man-at-Arms, Tila, Skeletor. You couldn't find, you know, Dragon Blaster Skeletor was great. Right. But to get new kids into the brand, they wanted He-Man, like you looked on of the show. Of course, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that I mean, that was absolutely the peak of He-Man in pop culture. Right. I think for collectors, two peaks were the 2000 X show, like the second season. Right. And then Castle Grayskull in the classics line. Yeah. Um, was kind of the peak of that. Yeah. I mean, may, you know, I'm hoping the best is yet to come. I mean, with them putting so much energy into two new shows and there's like seven different form factors at retail right now. Yeah. Before coming, you know, this year. Both of those are are things I want to touch on because I think they're they're uh, one they're important two they're super exciting. Before I get to that, I want to talk about your time on the brand at Mattel. What would you say was your the the one thing that you got to do that you would say was your greatest achievement with the brand? I mean, the castle. Was, I think it's a combination of the castle and completing the vintage line. Yeah. Um, to me, that's always something that's like so important with a, you know, a, a reimagining of a brand, any brand. Um, like we did that with uh, Superpowers as well over on the DC line. We did every figure that was released in the original Kenner Superpowers line. Right. And this is something, as an example, I'm also a big collector of Star Wars, three and three-fourth, and they still haven't finished the vintage line, like, to this day. I think that's and one they, where they never will. And they have, like, three figures to go. I mean, it depends on how you, you know, do the math or, you know, if you what variants you might count. But, sure. But, I mean, the the Imperial Dignitary, Slimaloo. Right. Never him. That's kind of crazy to me. So getting every single figure. I know we didn't get to all the new Adventures figures, but that was sort of never part of the promise. They were always, like, icing on the cake. Yeah. And even she were completing Princess of Power was awesome. But the vintage He-Man line. Um, I mean, you can nitpick and say we didn't do like the meteorbs or something, but every figure, deluxe sure, figure, yeah. you know, was done in classics. And to me, that is like spectacular. So let's look at the other. I, I just want to touch on the the flip side of that. Was there something that you wanted to do for Masters Universe that for whatever reason you just were not able to do uh, during your time on the brand? Um, I mean, I really wanted to get to the slime pit, which we had plans for. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, but that was, I mean, that would have been just like another mini playset. One thing I, I had really wanted to do, and it's not, a, it's sort of a quasi masters was doing a major Matt Mason classic line that was going to tie into masters. Oh, wow. Um, through Marlena. I have a video on my channel about this, but basically the idea of since Marlena was in a green spacesuit. Right. From Earth, and the original major Matt Mason figures were all in primary colors. Yes. In spacesuits. Yeah. There's no green character right so my idea was to use her as the crossover character and bring in major matt mason into the motu world as these earth astronauts and she happened to be the one that got to eternia right right uh, i thought that would have been really fun but i just could not get enough people behind me oh that's really unfortunate masters universe is one of those brands where we i think as fans we tend to do that too we talk about sort of 
what other properties kind of work with it. Uh, any other properties you think uh, combine really well with Masters of the Universe? I mean, there's quite a few. I mean, the ones that fans bring up all the time are things like, you know, Black Star, Brave Star. Yeah. Those aren't owned by Mattel, though. So, like, I constantly would be asked, you know, could you do, would you do Brave Star figures? Right. I can't do Brave Star figures in Masters just the way I can't do Star Wars figures in Masters. It's not, like, Mattel owned Major Matt Mason. That's right, yeah. So if I wanted to bring Monster High into it, I could. uh, But it doesn't fit thematically. And so, like... Yeah, I mean, I would get so many requests to do Brave Star figures or Black Star figures. Yeah. But, you know, it, it, that's the same way of saying, like, you know, well, Conan or or um, John Carter would fit, you know, aesthetically. Sure, sure. Or Tarzan. Like, yeah, they would, but Mattel doesn't own them. And if I contact the owner, they're really probably not going to want you to do their toys in another no, brand. No, yeah, don't dilute my brand. <laughs> right, like if I, got, if I happen to get the license to make... Well, like Thundercats is a perfect example. Right. It, that was one that, even though I left Mattel before I, the first figure came out, I that was a big project I worked on was getting the Thundercats license. And you'll notice we didn't do Thundercats figures as like part of the He-Man world. No. We did them as Thundercats figures. Yeah, of course. You know, like Warner Brothers is not going to want you to do that. No. You know, like, like you said, dilute the brand. Yeah, exactly. But that's a big rabbit hole, and you you talked about. I'm, I'll just touch on this sort of lightly right now because I'm going to come back to it. But that is a bit of a rabbit hole when you talk about who owns what, and if you start tracing the lineage down to, you know, LJN uh, produced the action figures, but Rankin Bass produced the entertainment, and then those companies get bought and sold, and trying to keep track of all that can be uh, it can be pretty daunting. Yeah, it'll. Especially masters, it'll give you a yeah. head, video of like just tracing like the ownership of man. Like Mattel does not own masters. I so that was a huge revelation for me to watching that video, and uh, I'd had this conversation in the last couple of weeks with some of my friends who are are pretty serious masters collectors, and I said, "You realize that in 2023, there's a you know there's the potential for some major change to happen." Um, and I think that's also why Mattel is like quadrupling down right now on the form factors. Right. Because one, they're going to lose the license or at least lose their fur. Right now what they have, and I could be wrong because Mattel, but from my best understanding, they have first pass rights at toys. Right. So Universal, who, who owns Masters, could, would come to Mattel and say, okay, we want a line of six inch action figures. Right. You want to make them, and Mattel. If Mattel says no, then they have the right to go to another toy company. That's right. So that's also why I think Mattel is putting out Fisher Price and Imagine X and like and Mega Blocks because Universal could say, "Okay, we want to do construction. Will you do that?" Because if Mattel said no, they would go to Lego. Of course, yeah. We want to do young kid toy, you know, toddler toys. Yep. And if Mattel says no, then they'll go to play school. So Mattel sort of has is in a position where they sort of have to say yes to everything. Well, it's funny you say that uh, because that was sort of my follow-up was suddenly, you know, in a transitory kind of way, we had Mattel with the brand uh, through Masters Universe Classics. And then we saw the the shift over to Super 7 and suddenly Super 7 took over the line. And now it's like, wait a minute, they're done, like surreptitiously done. And suddenly there's this deluge of new Masters of the Universe product from Mattel. And I couldn't help but wonder after I saw your video, like, 
with this looming 2023 date, you know, is Mattel trying to send the message to Universal that they are, in fact, the best place to uh, to to place the brand? I think it's partially that and partially anything they say no to even now. Right. Then that automatically triggers Universal to have the right to go to another toy company. Right. So they have, they're sort of in a position, it's like a rock and a hard place. Yeah. They have to say yes. Right. Otherwise, another toy company starts making He-Man toys like that. So one of the other things you'd mentioned in your video was that uh, Universal recently signed a strategic partnership with Hasbro. So let's just, we'll imagine for a second, Mattel says no for whatever reason. Is there another toy company out there that you think is well-equipped or you know, maybe should be given a shot at Masters of the Universe? Um, I mean, you know, I mean, Hasbro definitely makes the best action figures. They kind of own the category the way Mattel owns diecast cars and dolls. Right. Um, and that's actually always been a whole thing where it's like there's like an unofficial treaty between the companies. Okay. That yeah. they, you know, tread on each other's. And that's, it's definitely broken down over the years, like especially with Hasbro getting the Disney princess license. Right. Um, after Mattel made Ever After High without telling Disney, but that's a whole other YouTube video. <laughs> so, you know, with that treaty out of the way, part of me is like, how much Motu do we need? Right. You know, I mean, there's been so many form factors between what, what Super 7 has done, Funko has done, Mondo has done. What I love about classics is it's like a complete line. I mean, there's definitely more you could do. I'd love right. to see more new adventures, more filmation, more 2000X. There's always more. And I don't think any line will ever get as deep. So to me, whatever company I is making it, I would continue making classics. I mean, not just because I worked on it, but because like we'll never get, I don't think we'll ever get Origins that deep or the Fisher Prize Little People that deep. Right. Well, it certainly was, uh, you know, for me as a, as an adult toy collector and, and I didn't, I didn't come back to toys as an adult until, uh, 2007. So it's still relatively recent in the grand scheme of things for me. And so masters of the universe classics was a huge part of it and still is a huge part of my toy collection. So I certainly agree with you on that and I would love to see uh, more of it. Who knows? But these, uh, the Revelations figures, I don't know if you saw the uh, the promos for the first couple. Uh, it was a He-Man and a Battle Cat, I think, and a Skeletor advertised just a few weeks ago. What did you think of those? You're talking about the the, the Revelations, not not the uh, Yeah, the CGI Revelations. Show. Yeah, the Revelations ones. Yeah. So I actually, um, I did do a video on it, on which I'll plug it. Spectre Creative on YouTube. <laughs> I haven't plugged it yet. So I did do a video about that. Basically... To me, it looks like an exact carbon copy of, from a manufacturing spreadsheet standpoint of 2000X, where they're putting on an animated series, doing figures based on that animated series look. And in, I mean, while in this case, they're calling it a collector line. Right. But factually, a collector line can't work at retail. No. The only place a collector line, a purely collector line can work is online. Um, and you see this with both, you know, everything from what Maddie did to what Hasbro Pulse is doing. Sure. You know, making sail barges or even making Hellfire Guards. Right. Uh, you know, that complement your Marvel Legends collection, if you will. Although Marvel Legends has a whole other thing because of the constant content Marvel has that no other brand does. No. That's, 
that's a whole other issue. Yeah. Uh, I'm making some notes here because I'm getting ideas for future videos. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, of course. So, you know, a lot of it, I think, is going to depend on the on the show, how interesting the show is and entertaining it. I am a big Kevin Smith fan. I love his Cloaks animated yeah. series. I think that's one of the best things he's ever done. I, I think those six episodes are like, there's not a moment in any one of those six episodes that's not gold. Yeah. Um, so I love what he does from an an- with animation. Um, obviously, you know, this may take a different tone, but... I think the popularity of the figures long term is going to depend on the interest in the show. Right. Because if the show is good, people will want toys from it, like they want toys from 2000X. If the show is not interesting, then, you, you know, it's it's kind of like how there's so many, when the first X-Men movie came out in yep. 99, 2000. Yeah, 2000. You know, we all rushed out. We were so excited to get movie X-Men figures. Right. And part of the idea was this was the first time we were this made this was like our only chance to ever get these. We would never get, you know, this is like the one X-Men movie. Maybe there'll be a sequel. Right. And now here we are. And there's like, what, you know, 10 X-Men movies, you know, or whatnot. They don't even make toys for the recent ones, except like at Comic-Con. And so, you know, and it's and no one really has interest in buying toys from the first X-Men movie for the most part. Not um, I mean, certainly not now. That's for sure. Right. Uh, especially now that they're going to be part of the Marvel Universe. Yeah, yeah. X-Men will get totally rebooted. Or same thing with Spider-Man. You know, no one's running out to buy Tobey Maguire Spider-Man action figures. <laughs> no. <laughs> so Motu is kind of like that too, where, where if we're constantly getting new interpretations of the brand, then, you know, which is the one that collectors get all in on? And that was sort of the whole point of classics was it was a, it, you know, not a definitive, but it, it was one that, Everyone you could get behind, and you could get the whole world in one style. With with Revelations, you know, it, it obviously has its own look. I think a lot of people are under the impression that we're going to get classics figures sure. in that series. And, you know, they look cool. They, if, if the show is awesome, I will definitely, you know, it's something I feel like, oh, yeah, yeah, like I want a couple figures to represent my love for that particular show. But I couldn't help but notice the uh, the promo picture, and I was surprised that there wasn't really a lot of high resolution photography for those. But that He Man and Battle Cat, when I when I first saw it, it, it immediately made me think of the uh, the stations from NECA. There was a, a filmation style He Man done as a staction, and I thought that is literally that staction riding on Battle Cat. So uh, interesting uh, stylistic choices that it's. I don't want to say a step backwards, but on some level, maybe it is. It looks a lot. I mean, it does. It looks more like 2000X from a style standpoint. Yeah. Than it does the vintage, you know, like, like, you know, you know, origins, you know, looks like the old. Yeah. Toys. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, versus, you know, so yeah, again, I think it's going to come down to how good the show is. I mean, if the show is mind blowingly amazing, then it'll fuel toys. If it's of course. Yeah. Good. It'll, you know, people will get like their, you know, their token figure to represent that series. Of I think course, a lot yeah. Of collectors collect that way. They have some lines are all in on and others where they get like a token representative of that IP. Well, Scott, uh, with the uh, Revelations, it's been pitched as the direct continuation of the Filmation series. I was a fan of the Filmation series. I assume you were as well. Not as, yes. not as serialized as the Mike Young show was. So... When Kevin Smith says that this show is going to be the continuation of Filmation, 
I think back to how many how many plot lines in filmation because there weren't a whole lot of multi-part sort of stories in in that series is there a plot thread or maybe a story idea that from filmation you'd like to see fleshed out or completed within uh, revelations well what i think and you know, obviously i have no insight into what they're doing but what i'm guessing is is it will be about tila and her mother and i actually wrote a he-man movie oh wow Mattel. Um, you asked me if i'd you know written movies and yeah, I, I, mean, yeah. I have written more than it's been shot and the way I wrote it was with the triangular relationship between Man-at-Arms, Adam, and Tila. Right. Because they all, so, you know, Adam loves Tila. Tila was raised by Man-at-Arms. Yeah. Man-at-Arms trains Adam. Yeah. And I'm guessing that that will be probably the backbone emotionally of this series. Because as you said, yeah, it's not like there were that many no, deep. No, no. But the really the one going on was Tila's revelation in filmation yeah, that yeah, she who her mother was. There also could potentially be, you know, something about, you know, Adam learning where his powers come from. Sure. But to me, it's like, well, they come from the castle, you know? Yeah, it's yeah. Like, it's not, ooh, oh, they come from the castle. My God, my life has changed. Knowing so, that, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, no. Knowing that the uh, that the bios for Masters of the Universe classics largely uh, leaned into what they were potentially going to do with the third season of the Mike Young production, maybe any chance some of those plot lines you think they'll get picked up maybe and kind of fleshed out in this series? Personally, I would love that because, I mean, I was such a huge fan of 2000X. As was I. Um, you know, the series and toys. Um, I mean, I, you know, it did a lot better uh, with collectors than kids. But that's also why it didn't last, because it only appealed to collectors. Yeah. And that's actually going back to my previous thought about Revelations, when I'm saying it feels like a carbon copy of that, is that it might do really great with collectors. And that's awesome, but that's not enough to for it to keep it retail or to, you know, or even the, the, the episodes. Right. Uh, you know, to ju- I don't know. I mean, I have no idea how Netflix judges, you know, all, you know, that kind of thing, you know, number of watches. But either way a show like that presumably especially a toy line has to have kid interest so i mean i'd love it if they picked up 2000x subplots i yeah. would just want to see more 2000x honestly <laughs> yeah. i'd rather just say i'd almost rather kevin smith said this is a continuation of 2000x versus a continuation of filmation because 2000x was a reimagining <laughs> yeah of exactly of yeah yeah you know like it already took the ball and rolled with it and it so that's again why I feel like this is just 2000X all over again. Yeah. And why would you repeat something you know failed? Yeah. We're, how do you reinvent the wheel? <laughs> yeah. Like you already did this. It didn't work. Yeah. And now you're doing it again 20 years later. Well, so like, you know, what's the definition of insanity? I guess so. I think it has a lot to do with maybe the, the way that consumers are actually are consuming their entertainment and, Streaming is, is plays a large role in that. I mean, we saw it with uh, Voltron, Legendary Defender, which by all accounts was a pretty successful series. Toy-wise, I don't know, that's arguable. Well, and that's where more I'm thinking is toys. I mean, sure, yeah. the show might you know, do fine, but they're really looking at this as a toy property. Yeah, absolutely. You know. I want to change it up a little bit, and I know I'm, we're kind of going over our time here, and I don't want to take up too much more of your time, so I'm, I'm going to try and blast through the last few questions here so you can get on with your day. 
<laughs> no uh, problem. Thank you very much again. A lot of people may not know this, but uh, you were immortalized as a Masters of the Universe Classics character. In fact, your portrait was used for one of the Attorney and Palace Guards. Can you tell me what that process was like? Um, besides being like a total, like, you know, lifelong, you know, wow moment. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we were doing generic guards and I had mentioned to the horsemen, like, oh, it'd be like so cool. Like we should all be the guards and they right. had no desire to be them themselves. They did not want to. Um, because they already like Cornbow was like, I've already been a figure in McFarland line and sure. Eric had already had, was like two figure. He was like Dr. Frankenstein and something else in the McFarland line. So, like, I actually offered it to them first. Right. And I was like, okay, well, then you should do the, like, us Mattel, you know, the people who work on the brand. They're like, right. all right, take some pictures of yourself. I'm like, seriously, you'll do this? I mean, I said it you know, kind of as a joke. Sure. Especially because I offered them the chance first. Um, so, I just, like, had, you know, my coworker shoot me from the front and the side and send right. them the pictures. And, you know, six months later, there comes the sculpt. And I was like, <laughs> wow, that's so cool. Well, the translation of that figure, uh, the portrait is actually, uh, it's very faithful. It's, it's clearly you. My mother doesn't think that. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> I do. But she's like, uh, yeah, which I'm like, are you kidding? <laughs> okay. While we're talking about figures, uh, let's, let's talk about this guy right here. Hey, look at that. Oh, that guy. I have yeah. That. He's uh, behind you on your shelf. Oh, you've got oh. a couple, you've got a couple of them there. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's like everywhere. I've got, yeah, sure. he's on every shelf in my office. So, Mighty Spectre, you took a lot of flack over this character. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> I guess for me, like as somebody who, like I say, coming into the brand as an adult, I had a completely different look at sort of what we were getting. And so for me, some of these, I think he came out at the right time, to be honest with you, because at that point I was still very eager. I'll take anything and everything It's good that has the master's label on it. Uh, and it wasn't until... 2015 where I was starting to check out. So, I mean, props for getting him out at the time that you did, but given the flack that you took at the time, what about like, are fans still talking about this character? Are you still getting the sort of the, Oh, you know, you abusive power or whatever the case may have been at the time, or are new fans who are discovering the character now, are they more, more receptive to him? Do you think? Um, I mean, yeah, there, I mean, there's definitely that, yeah, that whole, like, I mean, especially because mo most of, I think, what fans thought about the character, like, turned out not to be true. Right. You know, like, I was trying to make him the new He-Man or, you know, like, you know, make him the centerpiece of the brand, which was so not true. You know, and plus now he, you know, he's one of, you know, 350 action figures. Right. Versus, you know, at the time it was like he was the new character coming and the spotlight was on him, and it was like, what right do I have to make a He-Man toy? And I'm like, well, I mean, the, the, the story is that I tried to get people who worked on the brand in the vintage line to create new characters. Yeah. Or comic book, like, celebrities, like, and no one would do it for free. Again, I had, and I was spending all this time trying to reach out to creators of the brand or, you know, well-known people who worked sure, on it. Sure, Or comic book creators that management finally said, stop, you are wasting your time. Yeah. Like we don't approve of you using all this time trying to reach out to people to do something for free. Just, you know, do it like, you know, you and you and Terry do the figures because right, people right. know who you guys are. So it, like literally it came, it was because management was like sick and tired of me trying to track down, uh, you know, Mattel designers from the eighties. So, you know, and I spent so much of my, you know, it's like, again, this was a brand I was doing in my, spare time right uh, 
you know, whether I deserved a slot. I mean, you know, it's not about that, but I was like, I, but I had no qualms about, you know, getting a slot like that. I was like, this is cool. Like, it's fun. I think the what some of the weirdest comments were when people would say like, you know, he doesn't, he looks like he doesn't look like he belongs in Masters because he looks like Deadpool or whatever. I had read some of that, yeah. Yeah. I mean, one, I created him as a kid way before Deadpool was created. Of course, yeah. Um, and Deadpool, I mean, yeah, there is one version of him that has a chest thing like yeah. Spectre, but that's like not his main look. And that's like, again, like I created him years earlier, but also, you know, Motu has a, a, a firefighter with a robotic elephant head and a cowboy with guns that come out of his chest and a flying monkey with a jetpack. I mean, like, I've even, I, I'd hear people on like He-Man podcasts talk about how Motu is a brand that's like all inclusive for everybody. Yep. All designs are welcome. Yep. And Spectre would come out, except Spectre. Except that guy. I got to tell you, I saw the character and I saw the miniaturized cosmic key on his wrist and I was immediately sold. <laughs> and that was, was, I think that was, that was Terry who came up with that. I absolutely handed it to him, like yeah. doing the cosmic key. I was like, oh my God, that's genius. I love it. Well, I, I personally think that Spectre is a is a fantastic character. He is well-deserving of his slot within the brand. And uh, I hope that that character, uh, you know, hey, here's a pitch for you, uh, you guys over at Netflix. If you want to uh, get the mighty Spectre in on your show, I don't think uh, there's a lot of us out here that wouldn't mind that. So He showed up in the Masterverse comics that Tim Seeley wrote, and that, like, blew my mind. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, like I was flipping through it in the comic store. I was like, oh my God, Spectre's like, like he lives. Yeah, like, yeah. Someone's actually doing something with this character. That's amazing. I want to take a uh, quick second here and talk about something that I, I've, I, don't, I don't want to touch a chord, but um, we all kind of on bated breath watched the Masters of the Universe episode of The Toys That Made Us on Netflix. And uh, there seems to me that there was a glaring omission there namely the 10 years of work that you put in on the brand without even so much as a single name drop. I consider that to be an omission. How did you feel about that? Uh, yeah, no, I was, I was watching it too. I was so excited. And as they were getting to the, to the class, I'm like, all right, they're going to talk about classics. This is yeah. Cool. And they're like, and they credited super seven with all 10 years of that. Like what the, um, I, I mean, I wasn't offended, but I was like confused only because the show prided itself on being a well-researched documentary. Yeah. So either a, they didn't do their homework, which doesn't feel like they did because of or B someone told them specifically not to mention me. I don't know. I mean, I know I mean, right after I left the comic-con panel, they did, they totally threw me under the bus, which I thought was pretty insane so maybe there were you know people bitter there's a lot of politics in the toy industry I have sure, no sure. idea. It, but i mean yeah i mean it I was like wow they totally just not only snub, snubbed me but they actually credited super seven with 10 yeah. years of my work you know it's a really important point for me to hit as a fan because i think the more the more people that understand that the more uh, the better, again, the better informed we'll be. And I just think it's a great uh, injustice to you. The flip side of that is the Power of Grayskull documentary. Yes. Yeah. I worked with uh, Isaac Elliot Fisher on that as a great, great uh, documentary filmmaker and a uh, toy maker himself. And uh, he, 
uh, yeah, that was really, I mean, you know, it was good to tell, you know, my side of the story. Plus I also have my YouTube channel to, right. you know, try to, where I'm literally, you know, I think I've created more hours of He-Man documentary than any other person on the planet. Uh, yeah, really. Um, is, is, is an interesting way. So, you know, maybe they'll do a follow up. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, ins- I wasn't insulted or anything, but I was a little like, that was interesting. Yeah. I don't know about you. You certainly, uh, wear it better than I would. I, I would definitely be upset about that. So just a couple of quick questions and I'm, I'm going to wrap it up because I'm way, way over my time. And don't don't laugh at me for this one, but uh, on a scale of curse you all to I have the power, where does the 1987 live action movie sit for you? Um, where does it sit? Maybe like if you were going to draw a line right in the middle between <laughs> those two, it's you know slightly more towards um, you know curse you. Yeah, I, I mean it's enjoyable. You know, I still, it's still enjoyable. I, I mean, I've watched it recently. I, I was actually watching it. My, it was the scene where Beast Man crashes through the um, gym on Earth the, when he's looking for the kids. Right. Courtney Cox. And uh, my wife walked in and was like, what are you watching? Like, it just looked like a terrible 80s movie to her for like sure. you know, that one instant. Yeah. Plus, you've got like, you know, He-Man driving around in a pink Cadillac. Uh, I mean, there's there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff, you know, like why, you know, you know, budget wise, you know, mixed direction from Mattel. He-Man, you know, can't use a sword. He-Man must use a sword. Right. Um, You know, so I like it. I've met Gary Goddard. He's a great guy. You know, I got to meet with him on some projects we were doing, you know, and yeah, I mean, I think he had some unfortunate limitations imposed on him by both the studio and by Mattel. You know, it's a good 80s movie. I can't rewatch it the way I can watch, you know, Temple of Doom or Empire sure, Strikes sure. Back unlimited times. Right. You know, but it's not horrible. It's not a horrible movie in any, you know, I it's watchable. It is it is watchable. It's it's fun. I I hold it in the same vein as maybe the the Flash Gordon film with uh with Sam Jones. It's it's so over the top ridiculous that it it it's just you watch it for what it is and you know, don't expect a whole lot out of it. Yeah. You, you just have to like detach your expectations yeah. for a He-Man movie and accept, okay, this is what it is and enjoy it for what it is. So speaking of live action movies, that license lies over at Sony and uh, the reboot has recently been pulled from their release schedule. I suspect that has a lot to do with what's going on in the world with the uh, coronavirus. Do you think that the live action film can survive the pandemic? Has anything to do with the pandemic? And um, again, if you, uh, you know, listeners, head over to Spectro Creative on YouTube. I did a video about this. Essentially, here's the deal with the He-Man movie. And I mean, I've read many, many, many scripts. I actually have copies of them in a big, in a box in my closet. I even, and I said I, I wrote one with the right. intent of trying to show Sony this is, you know, how I think the movie could work. The problem is, is that it's too expensive to make, no matter how you cut it. Okay. It's because it's a fantasy world. We're talking, you know, like Avatar, Lord of the Rings style. Yeah. It's go. There's no way you can make that movie for less than two hundred and fifty million dollars. Um, okay. You know, and make it look good. Yeah. You know, make if you will, like Transformers take can take place on Earth, and yeah, you've got to CGI the robots, but you don't have to CGI the whole world. You know, if you will. Right. And that's why the original 87 movie took place on Earth. They got him off Eternia. And the, the only scenes in Eternia were a couple backdrops and 
the one set they built was the inside of Castle Grayskull, yeah. which they tried to use as much as possible because it was so damn expensive. <laughs> so to make the movie, $250 million make it minimum, even if you get like D-list talent, if you will. And you've then got to spend $250 million promoting the movie to re-educate the public that this brand exists. Because, well, again, for us, He-Man is like top of mind. For most people, it's like, wait, that naked barbarian guy from the right. 80s and there was Orko and there was a green cat, I think. Very little of, of Motu is recognizable by pop culture at large. Right. Way less than we think. We're biased. Yeah, for sure. Believe me, I've seen the data. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. when you ask people, like, name, you know, four things about He-Man, they'll be like, He-Man, a green cat, little floaty guy. Yeah. That's about it. Skeletor right. maybe comes up. You know, show them a picture of Buzz Off and they have no idea who that is. Okay. So, so between the cost of making the movie and the cost of promoting the movie, you're talking about half a billion dollars. Yeah. And to do a first movie for half a billion dollars is like no studio is going like, to like basically Sony finally wised up and looked at the numbers and we're like, oh, my God, no, we're not. There's no way we're funding yeah. this. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's way too expensive to make. Well, that's unfortunate. It, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, with the uh, with the amount of money that the streaming services are throwing at stuff, I look at, like you say, Lord of the Rings is a good example. Uh, Amazon Prime is throwing a bunch of money at uh, developing that into a series. Who knows? Maybe if Revelations takes off, there'll be some renewed interest from one of the one of the streamers, and maybe we'll see something live action down the road. I mean, believe me, I would love to see an amazing He Man movie. Yeah, I mean, me too. I, you know, I, you know, I got to know quite a few of the directors that were attached to the project at different times. They all had amazing visions of doing it. It's the money. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah. Totally makes sense. That? Who's going to write the check? Yeah, exactly. You know, for an unproven property, if you will. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, so. Well, Scott, I got to say a huge thank you for giving me uh, an hour of your time. We're, we're well over the time that I asked for. I can't thank you enough for wanting to uh, sit down with me this morning and, and chat about uh, your time with the brand and kind of where it's where it's been and where it might be going. Uh, before I let you go, though, I just want to touch on sort of any projects you have on the go. Any uh, like how can people connect with you if they want to see what you're up to? Ah, yeah, thank you. It was good to do a plug. Uh, so besides my YouTube channel, which is Spector Creative, Spector with an O, uh, you can also find me on SpectorCreative.com where I offer consulting services. I work with people who have either in-development projects or ideas for projects for branding, content, and retail solutions. So, you know, a lot of my clients are toy-related. You have an idea for an action figure line and want to go from, you, how do I go from my idea in my head to seeing it hanging at Target? That's what I do. Right. Um, I help people, you know, get, all, get there between making connections developing product lines with retail in mind. You can't just have like one item. You have to think about, you know, how it's going to skew retail. How are you going to brand it? Do you need content? So I offer all of those type of solutions. I do have a huge project that's about to be announced, but I can't do it quite yet. But, um, you know, let's, let's, I can, let's just say I'm not done being a toy maker. Oh, myself. that's great. So more on that, probably in a matter of a couple of weeks, if not months or months, if not weeks. Soon, <laughs> this year. So yeah, spectrocreative.com. Check me out and uh, you can always contact me through that site. Any chance you can talk about the option that you have out right now? It's a it's a boys action adventure property. Sure. Very much like Motu. 
you know, I don't want to give away the cat out of the bag with even what it's themed, but sure. you know, it's basically everything that I love about toys and movies and oh, all that's of that. Awesome. Um, and yeah, I've been developing it for now almost 30 years. Wow. Um, you know, which is why I think the company was interested in optioning it because I had, I had something like 27 scripts written and a oh, giant wow. Bible and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I had to put it in a closet during Mattel. Oh. Like the whole 10 <laughs> years, I had to like not touch it. Yeah. But as soon as I left Mattel, I brought it out and spruced it up and uh, hopefully it'll get picked up and I'll be able to announce that too. Well, it sounds like you have a lot of exciting things going on in your life. And as a fan, I look forward to uh, your continued success and hearing about all of the things that you have going on. I'll make sure that uh, we have the appropriate links in any of our social media to make sure that people can get directed to you. Again, this was a, a huge Star Trek moment for me, that whole like Picard's hand on the Phoenix, that it's a, it was a huge thrill for me to be able to sit down and chat with you about all things Master of the Universe and, of course, uh, what's going on in your life. I really appreciate uh, your willingness to want to sit down and do this. I cannot thank you enough. And hey, if this episode goes over uh, very well, uh, maybe there's a chance I can call on you again sometime. <laughs> oh, doors always open as well as, uh, you know, especially as a toy retailer, any ideas for topics or things I can clarify or sure, do sure. a video on like doors always open on that too. Well, that's interesting because uh, you know, I'm, I'm in several of uh, several large, well, large by Canadian standards, Facebook toy groups. And certainly I can start kind of poking around and, and see sort of what people are interested in. And maybe it's something that we can uh, communicate on. Even do team up. On I, lo- I mean I love clarifying information for yeah, yeah that's toys. great I love just going makers anyone involved in the industry so yeah, yeah. Doors always open. oh I'd love the opportunity to chat with you again sometime uh, this has been a, a total thrill and I, I again thank you so much for uh, sitting down and chatting with me oh my pleasure when it goes live send me the link and I'll put it on yeah there. absolutely thanks again Scott I hope you have a great day I'm sure it's warmer where you, where you are than it is here so <laughs> well stay healthy and stay safe yes I will so and you and your wife as well and your daughter yes yep okay well thank you again absolutely have a great okay one. Scott thanks very much thank you bye All for right. now hey guys thanks for listening to fandom power be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter Stay tuned for our next episode where we'll be talking about another one of your favorite fandoms. Fandom Power is a Sawcast production.